So the book of 2 Timothy talks about a topic that's very significant in understanding the Bible, and that is suffering. Suffering is a pretty common topic to talk about in churches because we all experience it in various ways, whether it's sickness, whether it's financial distress, whether it's relationship distress. We can experience suffering from many different directions. And so suffering often comes up in the Bible and it often comes up in the church. And we think about suffering often and how God comforts us in suffering, how God is at work in us in suffering. But here in the letter to Timothy, Paul is going to expect Timothy to make some responses to living in a world where he will experience suffering. Timothy will experience suffering. Paul writes this letter from prison about to die. And he writes to Timothy, who's doing the exact same things that led Paul to prison where he's about to die. So he knows Timothy is going to suffer. And so as Paul writes to Timothy, there's this expectation of suffering. And in the first chapter, we've already looked at some discussions on suffering. And he closes out the first chapter by giving some illustrations. And at the end of the first chapter, starting in verse 15, he talks about some guys named Phagellus and Hermogenes. Not names that you would probably think to name your children today. But Phagellus and Hermogenes have turned away from Paul. On the other hand, Onesiphorus has done the opposite. Onesiphorus has sought Paul out. And so, when people are faced with suffering, Paul expects there's going to be a range of responses. Some people are going to respond to suffering by faithfully following after Christ. Some people are going to respond to suffering by turning away, by abandoning the faith. And so we get to chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. And he starts off by saying, You then, my child. That then could also be translated, therefore. He's making a logical argument from what he just said. So Phagellus and Hermogenes, they've turned away. Onesiphorus has not. There's kind of two paths as we're faced with suffering. And so Paul turns to Timothy. He says, okay, you know there's two options. When you suffer, you may faithfully follow Christ or you may turn away from Christ. So then here's what I want you to do. If you're going to follow Christ in suffering, these are the requirements. These are the necessities for you as you suffer. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops? Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So, Paul is going to urge Timothy to suffer well. He's going to give him some requirements, some necessities that he must have in his life. We're going to look at three necessities for dealing with suffering as we follow Christ. The first one, we need to be strong. The second one, we need other Christians. And the third necessity is that we need to be remembering. So first, we need to be strong. Verse number one, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So that word strengthened is a bit of a translation challenge. The ESV is the only major translation that takes this option of saying be strengthened. So the difference is voice, passive voice or active voice. Is this something that is being done to us or something we are doing? So some translations will translate it be strong. Others will say be strengthened. So which direction do we go here? Frankly, the laws of grammar in the Greek language don't give us any help here. You can go either way. It's the same form of the word. And that's why different translations are going to take different tacks. And I don't actually know the answer. I wasn't there when Paul was writing. I'd like to ask him. I'm curious. But regardless, it actually doesn't make a tremendous difference in how we understand this passage. See, when we think of be strengthened, what we're thinking of this act of faith, where we are allowing God to be at work in us. We are allowing Christ to be at work in us, strengthening us, so that Christ is almost like Popeye taking a can of spinach. And so that spinach, he gets it inside him and suddenly he's strong. And so there's this passive sense that the spinach is what makes Popeye strong. If we're understanding this verse with that passive idea of being strengthened, that's what we're talking about. Christ in us gives us strength. That is a good and biblical concept. But also a good and biblical concept is the need to simply be strong. We must be strong. We must be like an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman who sets his feet in the turf. And if you watch the game last night, maybe the turf moves while his feet are set into the turf. But he sets his feet into the turf and they're pushing. He's being strong. He's being anchored. And really, we can see on two sides of this discussion some ditches we need to avoid. On the one side, if we take it completely passively, be strengthened, we get this idea that the Christian life is us just sitting around waiting for God to do something in us, and there's really no responsibility that we have for faithfulness because if I just sit on my rear end, on my couch, Jesus is going to make me strong so I can suffer well. But on the other side of the ditch, there's this lack of grace where if we're saying, be strong, I just have to work harder. I have to dig my feet in farther, and then I'm going to be strengthened. And so either direction we go, we're going to have some dangers to worry about. But frankly, I don't think we can decisively go either direction. So let's try and incorporate both of them. When we are walking the Christian life, is there a sense in which we must be strengthened by Christ? He is at work in us. Absolutely. The life which I now live in the flesh, I don't live, now I'm going to totally misquote Galatians 2.20. I don't live by my flesh, but I live in Christ. I am dead in Christ. It is Christ who now lives in me. That's found in Galatians 2.20. Christ is at work inside me. Yet, 
The Bible also says, work out your salvation. There is a sense in which good works are our responsibility. And so in this text, I think we have both concepts. If we are going to suffer well, we must be suffering in the grace of Christ, but we also must be taking advantage of the ways that God communicates that grace to us, the graces of God that he has given us. So let me give some examples. Children, God has given you parents. And so part of living by grace is obeying the parents that God has given you. That is God's grace. And we can sit here and we can think, no, I need a different kind of grace. But God gives us grace in diverse ways. And part of that grace is the gifts of authority that he has given to us. So if we're going to live in the grace of God, we submit to the parents God has given us. There are other means that God uses to communicate to us. There are means which God works in us. One significant, maybe even the most significant means is the word of God. And here in Timothy, word and testimony, gospel, these are all words that are popping up all throughout the book. He keeps turning Timothy's focus back to the word of God. In fact, the key text on the inspiration of scripture is going to be found in the next chapter in verse number 17. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. And so Paul, when he's dealing with Timothy who's suffering, he says, be strong in the grace of Christ, be strengthened in the grace of Christ. Pay careful attention to the word. Pay careful attention to what God has revealed about himself. That is a way that God gives grace. He is at work, yet that doesn't mean we are passive. We still have responsibilities to take advantage of the grace that God has given us. Now let me be absolutely clear. We're not talking about saving grace. We're not talking about righteousness that merits God's favor. So he looks on us and says, oh, Jeremy's trying really hard to read his Bible, so I'm going to save him. No, but when we have been given the grace of Christ, we have been given the righteousness of Christ, we then work out that salvation. We live faithfully. We ought to take advantage of the means God has provided. Other means God has given us are prayer perhaps the easiest to neglect because no one sees when we neglect this grace. When we neglect God's gift of boldly approaching the throne of grace as we sang this morning. Another means that God gives us is the ordinances. The gospel made visible through communion, through baptism. These visible expressions of what God has done. He has buried us in our sin and raised us to walk in newness of life. We are with Christ in burial and in resurrection. That ought to be a grace. That's the sort of grace that Paul uses in Romans chapter 6 to fuel the obedience of the Romans. When they're dealing with should they walk in sin now that they're saved, he says, you've been killed. You're dead and raised again in Christ. And so when demanding their obedience, when demanding their faithfulness, he points to baptism. When we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, we are partaking of a visible, tangible, touch, taste, see, smell, feel representation of what Christ has done. It is a memorial that points us towards what he has accomplished. And this is why we can say this is a means where God is showing us his grace, not 
and meriting salvation, not in a sacramental mindset that somehow God looks at us differently because we've partaken, but because as we partake, we are reminding ourselves of the gospel. I'd also add that when the Bible talks about these means, one of the primary attributes of the Bible's discussion of these means as we use them is that it happens in the community of the local church. When you look through the New Testament at prayer, there are certainly times when people pray by themselves. Paul often talks about his prayer life. But even when he's praying by himself, he often turns that and says, I'm praying for you in this way. We just talked about that in the first chapter of 2 Timothy. And really, you can go to the first chapter of most of Paul's letters, and we see Paul being public about his prayer. We see prayer happening in the context of the local church when Peter is in prison and the church gathers and they're praying together. Prayer can be a corporate function. It's something that happens in the church. Studying the word is something that happens, sure, in the privacy of our own homes. We all ought to be reading the Bible. But the biblical pattern is actually more focused on the public reading of the word together, on coming together as a body. And keep in mind, we take for granted that people know how to read. It's just part of living in America in the 21st and the 20th century. It, people know how to read. That has not been the history of the church. And it's not as if God has left people without the Bible because they couldn't read for the history of the church. No, God allowed for the gathering together where the word is publicly read, the word is publicly proclaimed. This is one of the ways in which God gives grace to those who will suffer. God gives grace, not in some abstract emotional, today I feel grace, tomorrow I might not feel grace since. God gives grace in real, tangible ways. He gives us gifts that point us to him. What is your relationship to the means that God has given you to grow in his grace? Do you take them lightly? Are they low down on your priority list? Where does reading the Bible rank? Where does gathering with the saints at church rank? Where does prayer rank? And all the priorities that we have if we are going to live a life where we are faced with suffering for Christ, we must be resting in his grace. And that requires us to be in his word. That requires us to be with his people. That requires us to enter his throne room in prayer. That requires of us to partake of the ordinances. These are ways which God strengthens us to stand in a world that is hostile to our faith. Where do those things rank in your life? Parents, where do those things reign and how you raise your children? What priorities take the place of these gifts that God has given to your children to grow in grace? Do you have as high a priority on your home on studying and knowing the Bible on learning at church on growing in their sanctification as you do on getting their homework done? Now, I know our family, we're very good about making sure that the homework gets done every night. They come home, they play for a while, they sit at the table, they do their homework, they've got probably 20 minutes of homework, and we have never one time in two years of having kids with homework missed doing homework. Yet, do we teach our kids as faithfully what Christ has done for them? Do we demand of them the same attention to 
working on a memory verse for church as we would for working on memorizing 4 minus 2? I mean, knowing 4 minus 2 is good. I'm not encouraging us to raise a bunch of ignoramuses. Ignorami? I'm not encouraging us in that direction. Yet, which is more important? Math facts or the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Have you talked about the Trinity with your kids? Good luck. <laughs> but have we done that? Like, this is vital to their life. Yet, it's so easy for us to prioritize reading a chapter from their textbook over doing those things. Are you raising children who will stand for Christ in a world that is hostile to them? If they will, they will stand in the grace of Christ. They will stand knowing what Christ has done, knowing what he has accomplished, through the means he has revealed it, through the gathering together of the saints, through the word, through prayer. Those priorities ought outrank math and reading and science in our families. So first, necessity for standing in tribulations is we must be strong in Christ Jesus. One commentator phrases it this way, the quarry from which we mine strength is God's grace in Christ Jesus. Our children must be pointed that direction. We must point ourselves that direction. The second necessity, you need other Christians. This is not a solo task. Verse number two, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Strength doesn't come in isolation. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, you get this down. He says, Timothy, you get this down and then help other people get it down. Now, particularly here in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to a pastor. And particularly in this situation, I think he's instructing Timothy to train other pastors to take responsibility for the proclamation of the word. Christianity is always one generation from extinction. If this generation dies out and is not prepared to teach, we're in trouble. There's always this responsibility to be entrusting to others. Broadly, this should apply to all of us. Disciples make disciples. If we have been entrusted with this deposit of the gospel, if God has given us this revelation of himself, if God has saved us, we ought then be taking that and depositing into others. Narrowly, it is speaking of pastoral ministry. Faithful men who will be able to teach echoes the words of 1 Timothy chapter 3, which describes the office of elder and the qualifications of elder, including that he must be able to teach. So the continued growth of the gospel requires continued teaching. It is amazing how quickly a church can apostatize when teaching is weak. It's amazing how quickly a church can go from a faithful biblical church to either wishy-washy or just downright heretical. It happens quickly when we leave the authority of the word. That's why I believe expositional preaching is the most significant task that I have as pastor. I ought to be standing up and declaring to you what the Word of God says. Even when I'm speaking on a topic instead of speaking on a specific text, I ought to be speaking about what the Word of God says. Now, I believe I have some good opinions. In fact, I believe every opinion I have, I'm right. Because if I thought I was wrong, I would change my mind. Now, I believe there's a good chance that I'm wrong about the things that I think I'm right about, but opinions don't really matter. 
This word is authority. This word is settled. And if the church is not clinging to the word, the church will cling to the culture. And the culture can be creative in how it's wrong, but it's always wrong. The culture which focuses on the self, the culture that puts my self-worth as being my ultimate end, on my desires for myself, however that shows itself in any different culture, it's hostile to the gospel, which says Jesus is everything, the glory of God is everything, and I am a sinner in rebellion against him. So, if I am going to be faithful to Christ, it will happen because of commitment to the word. And that commitment needs to be entrusted to others. Looking for faithful men who are also able to teach, who can be entrusted with this deposit, who can be entrusted with the gospel. Paul then provides three illustrations of the way a suffering life is going to look. I think it's interesting. He starts in verse 3, share in suffering. He doesn't say suffer he says, share in suffering. This is something we do together. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So a soldier, if we are going to suffer like a soldier, we are going to suffer with focus. We're going to be able to say, here's what matters. There are other things that don't matter. I'm not going to get entangled with them. It's still corporate. It's still a group. It's still sharing and suffering. It's not just me being strong all by myself. I'm some super soldier who shifts the battlefield. No, it is share in suffering as a soldier, someone who's not entangled, someone who is focused, someone who can make a value judgment to say this counts and this doesn't count. Following Christ counts and all this other garbage is optional. It's secondary. A soldier of Christ is going to be focused. If you are not focused, you will not suffer well because the moment you start suffering, you'll start looking at the place that's easier to go to. But that focus continues to bear down, continues to push through without distraction. The second illustration he gives is an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Okay, so an athlete must be obedient. So suffer like a soldier with focus, suffer like an athlete with obedience, knowing that, yeah, it would be easier to halfway through the marathon jump on a bike and ride the rest of the way, but it's not right. It's not the way you're supposed to run. We don't do what's easier. We do what is right. We suffer as an athlete with a focus, knowing we work through suffering. Finally, he says, we do this like a farmer. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So we are diligent. We work hard. If we're going to suffer well, we are going to need to be focused. We're going to need to be obedient. We're going to need to be diligent. We're going to need to labor with intensity because suffering stops people who aren't focused. Suffering distracts people who aren't obedient. Suffering makes people who are not diligent give up. And then to hit it home, he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He says, here's what I'm saying. Now think about this. Think about how you have to live if you're going to suffer. 
Think about what it will look like to share in suffering because it's not going to come naturally. Think about it. Dwell on it so you understand this. So how do we apply this idea to our lives? 2 Timothy is a unique book because it's written specifically to a pastor. So therefore, it should first be applied as it was originally intended to be applied. I'm not going to preach an entire sermon series just to myself, but that ought to be the first place it is applied. A pastor ought to be training other people to teach, other people to do the work of ministry. If I will be a faithful elder, I must be training other elders. I must be teaching others to follow Christ. Now, secondarily, this applies to the church. Really, we can divide how it applies to the church into two ways. First way... If this task that is given to elders here, this task that is given to Timothy is to entrust to faithful men, you know what Timothy needs in his church? He needs some faithful men. He needs people who are going to be faithful, who are going to be prepared to suffer, who are going to be prepared to be diligent, who are going to be prepared to do the hard work of having the gospel ministry entrusted to them. And so... On one sense, it does lie on Timothy to be training these men. But in another sense, these men need to be willing to step up. They need to man up and they need to be willing to have this task entrusted to them. Now, there's going to be reasons not to. There's going to be distractions. There's going to be easier paths. There's going to be busyness. There's going to be just the hard work that it requires. But here, Paul says, this must happen for the church to continue. This must happen for endurance and suffering. There must be faithful men entrusted with the gospel. So I would ask of the men in this church, is that you? Is that something that you should be pursuing? Now, Desire is a component of this. 1 Timothy 3, when it talks about the office of pastor, says if any man desires the office of bishop, he desires a good work. There's an element of desire. I don't think people should be drag kicking and screaming into eldership. That doesn't make for very good elders. That doesn't make for someone willing to do the hard work. However, I think we ought to be wise in how we think about desire. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We should not only rely on what I want to do, we should have a willingness to say, what should I want to do? And not everyone should desire the office of a pastor. In fact, some people can desire the office of an elder wrongly. They can desire it because I don't know why, but they can desire it for lots of different wrong reasons of wanting to have influence, of wanting to be respected, of wanting to have control, all sorts of wrong reasons. Desire isn't the only thing. It matters, but how often do we do what we desire to do and end up deep in sin? How often do we not desire to do what is right and we should be desiring that? I'll tell you, there's some Sunday mornings I wake up, I do not desire to come to church and preach. So do I get to say, well, I don't want to today? No, because there's an obligation there. There's an expectation However, how often in our own lives do we use our desires as an excuse not to follow after Christ? So my urging to the men in our church is to look 
in the mirror with honesty and say, is this something I ought to be desiring? Maybe I'm afraid. Maybe I am worried about time commitments. Am I right to be worried the way that I am worried? Or is that a product of misplaced priorities? And for some of us, I think it will be that we ought to be desiring this. For others, I think no. This is not like a everyone needs to be a pastor sermon. That would be a disaster. This is not a, everyone should feel this calling, but I would encourage every man in our church to look honestly at themselves and say, why do I or do I not desire this? Because Timothy is encouraged to entrust the faithful men who are able to teach. Where are the faithful men? In our church more broadly, though, we ought to be prioritizing the training of new church leaders, both within our church and globally. I think the opportunity we have with Central African Baptist College, I hope everyone got a chance to watch the video this week. If you didn't, let me know and I'll make sure you get it in your inbox this week. We ought to be participating locally and globally and entrusting men to teach the word of God. And frankly, I think since we all have been given a deposit of the gospel in different ways, we all ought to be teaching others. Maybe not in an official formal setting, but we all ought to take seriously what God has given us and the, how it should be shared with other people. So first, we need to be strong. Second, we need other Christians. This isn't a solo job. The third necessity for standing and suffering is we need to remember. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So he says you need to remember something. Remember Jesus Christ. Well, what do we remember about Jesus? He gives us two components of who Jesus is that we need to remember. First of all, remember Jesus risen from the dead. Remember the resurrected Jesus. This brings my mind back to where we were last spring in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A whole chapter about the resurrection of Christ. And the whole idea there is that is our hope. If Christ has conquered death, what do we have to be afraid of? If Christ has already beaten the greatest enemy, what in the world are we afraid of? So Paul, when writing to Timothy, says, remember... The resurrected Christ. How's that going to benefit Timothy? When he's standing in front of lions, says, so what's going to happen? I'm going to die? Well, that already didn't work once. I already know where that ends. Suddenly, if we have absolute confidence in the resurrection, there is nothing to be afraid of. God has not given us the spirit of fear, as Paul tells Timothy. Well, why shouldn't we be afraid? Because God is in control of even the greatest enemy. God is in control of death. So Paul urges Timothy, remember the resurrected Christ. 
But he also tells them something else. Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. What does that mean? Remember, Jesus is risen, but remember, Jesus is king. He is in control. He is the ruler. He is the one who sits on David's throne for eternity. His rule is unshakable, and he is a good king. And so we follow after Jesus, the king on David's throne. That gives us, again, boldness, knowing he is in control. He is in command of everything that happens. Remember Jesus. As preached in my gospel. Well, what is Paul's gospel? You can go back to 1 Corinthians 15 again. That Jesus died, and then he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul's gospel is a crucified and risen Lord. How does that help us when we suffer? He's risen, he's conquered death, but he also has gone before us in suffering. Jesus refers to suffering as a Christian as taking up our cross and following him. What a wonderful language that he uses to refer to our suffering. Bearing a cross. Do you know what's encouraging about Jesus calling us to bear a cross? We are not the first person to do it. When we are called to suffer, we are sharing in the suffering of Christ. We are filling up the suffering of Christ. We are a part in his suffering. Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he has not already done. When Jesus says, take up my cross, he's already done it. We are following. We are not leading. We are not the first to suffer. He was touched by our infirmities. He was like us in every way. He bore the weight of temptation. He bore the weight of sickness. He bore the limitations of humanity. He endured all of those things. So we follow after him. He takes up his cross so we can take up our cross too. The Jesus preached in Paul's gospel is a Jesus who suffers for man. Therefore, when we look to him, we are enabled to suffer for him. He did it first and he did it to completion. I had a conversation this week about Jesus' temptation. When Jesus was tempted, was he able to sin or not able to sin? Okay, I'll get on a rabbit trail if I go too far here. But anytime we have one of those conflicts where you feel like you're playing Jesus' humanity against his deity, remember the doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus has two natures. He is both man and he is God. And that's where you solve the problem. That's all I'm going down on solving that problem. But when Jesus suffers temptation, as God, he cannot sin, right? So we might feel a little bit like, well, did he really suffer temptation like us? Like he was God. He was not able to sin in his divine nature. So how could he suffer temptation? Yet think of how we have dealt with temptation. Every time we have been tempted, sometimes we've stopped. Right? Sometimes we have resisted temptation. Sometimes we have not resisted temptation. See, Jesus was tempted in a way we can never understand because he resists temptation all the way to the end. He resists temptation without ever failing. You know, it's kind of like when we, if you think of a bridge, and if that bridge has a person walk across it, 
great. It's resisted the weight of a person. Jesus has a truck drive across the bridge, and he does not bend. He has resisted temptation far more than we ever possibly could. And so, when Timothy is suffering, Paul points him to remember Christ as preached in his gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Remember Jesus, I'm suffering for the gospel, I am bound, the gospel is not bound, the word is not bound, even when it seems that my faithfulness is not being rewarded, even when it seems like my faithfulness is fruitless, the word of God is not bound. Remember the power of the gospel. While the preacher may be bound, the message cannot. Therefore, keep preaching the gospel. He urges them to remember the recipients of the gospel. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Remember that there are those who receive the gospel, and you are called to labor for them. So labor for them, knowing that God has appointed you as the means of their salvation. Your proclamation, how will they hear without a preacher? Romans chapter 10. So preach the gospel, knowing that people must hear it. Remember the recipients of the gospel. This gives me flashes of Paul's writing in Philippians chapter 1. A similar time, he's in prison. There are people who are presenting the gospel in opposition to Paul. And he says, whatever, as long as the gospel's preached. Paul faces death, says, okay, that's fine, as long as the gospel's preached. He has a priority on the proclamation of the gospel because people need to hear it. Finally, he urges Timothy to remember the end this saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him past tense we will also live with him future tense if we endure we will also reign present tense future tense if we deny him he will deny us present tense future tense if we are faithless he remains faithful both present tense but paul points timothy's mind points timothy's eyes towards the end we suffer because we will not suffer forever. When God calls us to suffering, we are not suffering like some stoic philosopher who says, well, suffering is a part of life, so I'm just going to be tough. I'm just going to keep walking through suffering just because I can't stop it anyway. Not like kind of the old farmhand in Wisconsin, the, the guy who cuts his leg off with a chainsaw and then drives himself to the hospital. That's not how we suffer. It's not this toughness of I'm just going to do whatever I have to do. The toughness of the Christian is a toughness that says, this hurts, but I know that something better is coming. Christ calls us to suffer for something. Not just suffer because suffering happens. Suffer because you will reign with Christ one day. There is a future that you must remember if you will suffer well. It says, if we die, we'll live. If we endure, we'll reign. There's also a warning here. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are not faithful, the New Testament is filled with teaching like this, that those who truly believe in Christ will persevere to the end. They will not turn away. So we must be faithful. We must follow after Christ because if we deny him, we show that we do not believe him. If we deny him, we show that our faith is not true. 
But lest we be too discouraged there, it says if we are faithless, he is faithful. There is a point where we may be faithless. We will struggle. We will limp through life. Some days we will suffer really well. Some days we will suffer not so well. Yet God is faithful so long as we do not utterly and finally deny him. Jesus is the object of our faith. So when we are faithless, we should still turn to him knowing that in the end, he is the one who will be faithful. Jesus is where we place our faith, not in our own faithfulness. We will have to endure much suffering in this life. Persecution, physical illness, financial suffering, relationship struggles. We all will experience suffering in many forms throughout this life. So what do we need if we will suffer well? We need to suffer strengthened by Christ, strong in Christ, participating in the grace that he has made available to us. We must suffer with other people, sharing in suffering and trusting to others the message that we have been entrusted with. We must remember if we will suffer well, we must have our gaze fixed on the one who suffered before us, on the one who will reign after our death. We must look to Christ. And so this morning, because God knows that we won't do that, he has instituted a tangible, physical means for us to remember his sacrifice. And so this morning, we'll partake together in the Lord's Supper. He knows Jesus is leaving. He knows his disciples will lose faith. He says, here, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember what I have done, to remember Jesus, the risen son of David, to remember Jesus, the one who bore a cross before ever asking us to bear a cross. Remember Jesus, the one who bore temptation to its completion without sinning. Remember Jesus, who is mocked and spit upon. Remember Jesus, who is opposed by his own. So this morning, to help us out, Jesus provided for us this supper. So what we will do is, has become our custom of late. In a moment, we'll have everyone come up and grab the bread and the cup. Take it and return to your seats. When you get back to your seats, we'll take some time and silence to examine ourselves, as Paul instructs in 1 Corinthians 11, to look at ourselves. Are we truly repentant? As a church, we practice close communion means if you are walking in obedience to Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, you are not harboring unrepentant sin, you are welcome to partake of communion with us. You do not need to be a church member here. Even though our practice is baptism by immersion, you do not need to be immersed to partake in communion with us together here. We welcome you. If you are not a believer in Christ, we ask that you not partake in communion this morning. We'll all come to the front pick up the elements, return to our seat, and wait together. And then in a few moments, I will lead us together in the observation of the Lord's Supper. So at this time, go ahead and come to the front.